Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a series of short discussions on various topics related to the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Your hosts, Kale Tita, Evan Basilic, and Sajid Mello, discuss a specific topic on each show to give you a high-level overview of that topic and resources to get more information should you wish to dig further. For more information on our show, please see our website at azpodcast.com. Well, welcome back to the Azure Podcast. This is episode number 16, and uh, it's a, a special episode. We're going to talk about uh, some of the things to watch out for when you deploy your IaaS uh, instances in Windows Azure. This is uh, infrastructure as a service. You have VMs out there, and we're going to uh, take advantage of uh, uh, one of my, one of our colleagues' uh, expertise in this area to pick his brain as to what you should watch out for when you put your uh, VM up in the cloud. So just uh, as always, uh, my name is Sujit Mello. I'm a consultant in the AppDev uh, space based out of New Jersey. And uh, on Skype, I have my uh, two esteemed colleagues, uh, Kale and Evan. Guys? Hey, this is Kale, uh, MCS uh, consultant as well, working with Sajid in the New York, New Jersey region, uh, mostly on AppDev and Azure type projects. And this is this is Evan, and I'm in uh, on the Windows team supporting Azure IaaS. Awesome, great, thanks. So, uh, as uh, our listeners might uh, recall, last week uh, the three of us were together in uh, Seattle, and we we recorded our last uh, podcast. Uh, you know, in Evan's hotel room, actually, uh, over there. That was uh, nice uh, to get to meet uh, both the guys there. Uh, today, uh, we're back in our individual uh, homes, I suppose, and uh, doing it uh, remotely as we normally do. But uh, one of the things that we uh, we all uh, got to experience last time was uh, like an annual uh, gathering of all consultants, uh, Microsoft consultants in uh, Seattle. And um, our own uh, Evan uh, Basilic, uh, he gave us, gave us a great presentation on some of the things to watch out for in IS. So we thought we'd pick his brain on that uh, today. So, um, so, so Evan, um, I remember <laughs> one of the things I really remember in your presentation is uh, you uh, got everybody straight about the correct way to say uh, premise or a premise. Uh, can you explain <laughs> that for a second? Yeah. So, so. Uh, and actually, it's interesting. If you go out in the media and everywhere else, you see it kind of all over the place. But if you go look, right, some people say it's it's on-premise. Some people say it's on-premises. If you go actually look in the um, dictionary, and we'll, we'll put this on the uh, on the website, um, the, the correct term when you're talking about infrastructure in a local building is on-premises. Uh-huh. Um, so I will, I will put myself on the hook here. If you ever hear me call it on-premise, just poke me and poke me really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, that was an eye-opener for me. I, you know, didn't make that connection until you brought it to my attention. So, thanks for that. Be... One con- one convert. Exactly. There you point. go. <laughs> I just thought it was like an English thing or something. You know, I was like, oh, tomato, tomato. I don't know what this is, but <laughs> my, okay. my, my my grammar teacher mother would be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, so let's get uh, right to it then. So you know. I got to tell you, uh, Evan, one of the most uh, common complaints that I've received from, or not, I wouldn't say complaints, but, you know, the common issues that are brought to my attention uh, is uh, regarding Windows Azure IS is, hey, 
my stuff just disappeared. And yeah. that, that's a whole Pandora's box, if you ask me. So, you know, what, 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 how should users start approaching this kind of issue? Yeah, so it is actually one of the complaints we hear a lot. And, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of one, there's really two big scenarios that we see. Um, one of them is relatively benign, but it, it can be a little problematic to recover from. The other one is really could be potentially really disastrous. Um, so let's, let's talk about the benign one first. So the benign one is normally, you know, you, you log in and, and your VMs are gone, right? You had these VMs gesture and you don't have them there. Um, there's typically two scenarios where that happens. The first one is, you know, we all have this concept. We all know this concept of co-admins in Windows Azure. And a co-admin sounds great until you realize that sometimes, you know, just like who moved my keys at the house, it's never me. It's always my wife or my kids. Um, the person, the, the reason your VMs are gone is because your co-admin deleted them. Right, they you know they thought you were done with them or or, or whatever. Um, it's not hugely hugely common, but we have definitely have seen cases of that. Uh, we can actually look at our logs on the server side and see that. Um, so that leads to an interesting conversation between co- two co-admins, but it's definitely not something wrong with the service. Um, the other big one, this is the one that we see much much more common, is if you have a trial subscription, you only have 750 compute hours. Uh, and this, again, this is not the MSDN. This is a true 30-day uh, pay-as-you-go trial. Uh, we'll give you 750 compute hours. Um, unfortunately, when this is the, something we're kind of talking about better ways to handle it, but today, if you reach your quota for compute, we will delete the VMs. We won't delete the VHDs. You know, so you're not going to lose any data, but we're going to spin down the VMs, deallocate them. You know, you lose your BIP and, and like. The problem that people don't really think about is it all comes down to the number at 750 compute hours, which is a function of the number of cores you have, right? So if you have a single small VM, that's one core, you run that thing for 24 hours a day, you'll get 31 days of usage, roughly. Now, if you, on the other hand, say, hey, I want to spin up this you know, SQL Server environment with a couple always-on replicas, and you do some extra large VMs, which are eight cores, let's say you did four of them, you'll go through 750 compute hours in less than a day. Wow. Right? So you can really run the risk of not realizing that you're doing it if you just don't think about exactly what resources you're, you're consuming at that point. Um, so that that's kind of the relatively benign situation, right, because it's completely recoverable at that point. The scarier one is we regulate, we occasionally get people calling and saying, hey, my data disappeared. Almost invariably what that comes down to is that they put something that was not transient on the temporary data drive, the D drive. Now, this is a locally attached drive to the from it's kind of tied to the host node. So when your VM moves hosts, that drive doesn't move with it. What that means is any data that you had is on the old host now, and your new guest, your new host doesn't have access to the old host. The um, you know we try our best to prevent you from doing this, right? We, we name it, if you look at the volume picture, we name it temporary storage. We, you know, call it out in a couple different places. We document it left and right. But people are really tempted to do that because it's kind of something we pull from on-premises. Lots of people do that. And it, there is some performance benefit in some scenarios, but what you really need to think about is is what you're putting there truly scratch, right? Yep. You, you, you think about the scenario that we've all seen where I, you know, I don't know, I, I get a file from a, 
a customer submits me a file, I get it through the website, I store it on disk, and I do some processing, and then I, you know, and then I, you know, stick it into a database. Well, the minute you put that on disk, if you don't also have it persist, you know, if it's only in memory, if your VM restarts, you're gone, right? That information's gone. Mm-hmm. And if you stored it on disk, well, then that disk is gone, so you've just lost that that data. So just you know, you really should be, if you have anything that you, even just an infinitesimal amount of time, if you don't want to guarantee that you never lose that, you know, uh, workload or, or piece of data, right, put it on a data disk because those will go with your VM. Got it. Hey, uh, Evan, a real quick question back on the uh, the the VM uh, yeah. the, that you talked about before. Now, is there any way for the user to save the VM configuration or something? In certain case, it does get lost. They can rebuild it from there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a couple of PowerShell commands where you can do. I think it's get Azure VM config. Okay. I think I don't. I don't remember the exact command. I'll I'll pull it and, and we can put it on the website. But there is a command to do that. The the only thing that you can't. The, the other thing that you need to remember. It's actually. Thank you for reminding me. Is your virtual network configuration isn't persisted in a VHD or anything. So if you lose your resources, your virtual network, your VMs, you have to recreate your virtual network. So the one thing I do recommend people do is they do a there's a PowerShell command you can do to download the um, virtual network configuration. I recommend people do that. It's just an XML file, mm. and then later on you can re-upload that if you have to recreate something. So it kind of gives you your snapshot of stuff. That's perfect. That's perfect. Yep. Great. So, so Gavin, this is Kale. Um, I understand you received some interesting phone calls uh, for, from some frantic individuals saying, "Hey, dude, I think my VM was pwned." And uh, yeah. to, the, to the non-gamers out there, hacked. Um, so, so what's up with that? Yeah, it, it's kind of a scary situation, right? The you know, anytime you lose that, lose control of your VM, you know, who knows what can happen at that point. The the, the problem that we see people run into. Is to some extent. So these, these are VMs. They're 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 on the internet. They've got a public endpoint, and you can control the ACLs for the endpoint, or you can, uh, you know, you can control what ports are open. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, chances are you're going to have an RDP endpoint to this VM. Right? You, you have to be able to manage it or access it. Um, uh, there are unless you're really 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 good with PowerShell, you're probably not going to spend all your time in PowerShell. So you are going to have this. The challenge that we run into is, and I'm I'm guilty of this myself on premises. Um, if if I create a VM, I know it's on my corporate network or it's sitting on my Hyper V host, right? Its attack surface is very low, all things being equal. I use a strong password, but I don't know that I necessarily use a an unguessable password, right? And there's a big distinction between the two of those. So I, I mean, a good example is. I'm sorry if anybody, if I'm just now guessing anybody's password out there, but capital P at symbol SSWRD1, right, is one of those ones you've seen a lot of books and manuals and, and stuff. It's just kind of a, it's strong, but it's not hard. We've actually seen people who had RDP endpoints with that as their password. Um, early on when the default administrator login was called administrator, we actually had VMs that you know, somebody managed to figure out what port you were listening on, and they, you know, did a password, you know, brute force attack, and they managed to get into the VM and then take over. So these days, what we do is our we ask you for the default 
administrator account. So it's not named administrator. So that adds significant complexity to it. I put, would probably recommend you don't use something like admin. Um, but we also will block you from using kind of some really common passwords, um, like the, you know, like the PIAT SSWRD1 that I was talking about earlier. Now, what we don't do is we don't prevent you from doing that uh, at the VM level. Right, we just prevent you from doing that when you create the VM in the portal. And we have an opportunity to look at that. The rest of the time, we have no idea what your password is. Um, we don't. By the way, we do not store this information anywhere in our environment. Right, this we we take it we take it from you when we're creating the VM, and then we we throw it away at that point. We have no idea what it is, so don't we don't have them either. The um, the other thing that we I recommend to people is not only you know use um, strong and not easily guessable passwords is to secure the virtual machines with network ACLs, right? You can network ACLs, and we'll put a link. Uh, there's a couple, actually a couple of really good scripting guy articles that one of my teammates wrote, James Kerr, not too long ago, that talks about how to configure endpoints on your VMs using PowerShell and then turn around and add ACLs on top of them to say, hey, only people coming from this subnet, from this source IP can access these machines on the RDP endpoint. A great way to ensure that only people from your organization, you know, or your corporate network can get to your VMs. The other, the last thing to think about is it's all about minimizing your surface of attack. Um, it, you know, we were talking about these public endpoints exposed. Well, you don't really want to have the same username and password on all, you know, 50 or a thousand of your VMs, you know, you're probably going to have some unique one in each one. But what we do, but nobody wants to remember all those. So what we see a lot of people do is the same thing we've seen on premises deployments, which is what I call a jump box configuration. So you have all the VMs in a VNet, the RDP endpoints are disabled on uh, from external endpoints are disabled for all the VMs except for one. That one VM has a super strong password, a super hard to guess password, probably network ACLs on it. So you remote into that VM and then from there, once you're in the VNet, you have you're going through internal communication, so you don't need to go through the external endpoints. And you can RDP to those VMs, right? So you're jumping from that, you know, kind of source, you know, entry point box to the other VMs. So again, it really reduces the overall surface area of attack. That's a nice idea. I love that last idea with the jump box. Now, uh, you know, uh, Evan, I got to tell you that the the other common thing that people come up to me and talk about uh, issues with uh, their IaaS instances is something went wrong with my VM. I mean, you know, it's kind of a loaded statement, I know, but where <laughs> <laughs> where might people start in in uh, you know isolating what's wrong with their VM? Yeah, so so there's a couple common ones that we see. You know, I mean, obviously all the standard Windows stuff kind of applies and and we'll I think we you know we'll probably cover some of that in a future conversation but the big ones we see are things like NIC settings right somebody goes in and they set their DNS settings on the network adapter or they specify the uh, IP address as a static IP those things we don't we don't support you doing uh, at the VM at the network adapter level right for DNS you want to set them in the portal because every time you boot up we're you know and you move nodes Right, we're going to reapply that DNS stuff. Otherwise, every time you move nodes, we rebuild that adapter stack, and that blows away all the existing settings. Same thing with IP. We rely on DHCP, and if you set a static IP address, you basically disconnect yourself from DH, 
DHCP, excuse me. And that means that when you know your lease expires, you're not going to get a new DHCP address. It means Azure kind of loses connection with you, right? The, the IP is still there, but we don't know how to give you a new one. Now, both of those things, the DNS settings and the, the, the static IP, when we move nodes, we'll rebuild, rebuild all that. So you can recover from it. But today, the only way to force a node move is to do a portal restart, which you know is, isn't awful. It's no worse than a standard restart. But you can't. You actually you have to kind of do some manual recovery to recover, right? Because we're not going to just move you because we detect that you're down because we don't mm. know that you're down, right? So you have to. You know, somebody's going to call you, say you're you're down, and you go in and do that. Um, the one thing to call out here is you know things like MTU, things that you would set at the NIC level. Um, RSS, things like that, we will generally persist those. Um, I, I've seen some, I don't, I don't want to say inconsistent, more, I haven't pursued it. I've, I've heard some stories from people where they said these have changed. I haven't seen them for myself. The testing that I've done, I've never seen those change. Um, so, but I, if you're going to, and those are not things that people typically change. You know, MTU and RSS are typically things you change at the router level, right. not at the machine level. But, uh, you know, if you're gonna, if you have to change those for whatever reason for your application, I, I strongly recommend you do some portal restarts and see if they persist before you kind of build an application dependency on them. The uh, the other big scenario is, you know, my, you know, somebody calls it, you know, oh my God, my my VM restarted. Um, I actually had a, a survey tonight on this. Um, it, that's not that unexpected. Right. Azure is, uh, we have a term called service healing. And what that means is that, you know, something goes wrong at the, at the fabric level or something goes wrong at the host level and we need to move you to another machine and uh, another node and then we need to start you back up again. You know, the, the, the disk went AWOL or the machine, the host machine blue screen, right? All the, all the normal things that can go wrong at a hardware level. And what we'll do is we'll move you to a new node, spin you back up so that you don't really have minimal downtime. Now, Though our SLA says that we guarantee that you will always be up within an availability set if you have at least two VMs, right? So, you know, think about it like a load balancer perspective. If you have two web servers behind the load balancer, as long as one of them's up, traffic will get served. I completely agree and understand that things like SQL Server are not that easy to set up in that scenario, right? You have to do always on, requires some complexity, but the reality is, just like on-premises, unless you have two machines servicing the workload, at some point you're going to have a little bit of downtime because we had to restart it. Um, definitely want to leverage availability sets to minimize those types of restarts. Or I'm sorry, you'll still get restarts, but your workload won't be down. Right? There's kind of a, a difference, fundamental difference between a restart's okay as long as my workload continues. So, so just to be clear, so you, the expectation is that you have at least two VMs, right, in your service. In your availability set, yeah. In your availability set, and they're, they're, I guess, identical VMs. They're doing the same work. Yes. Now, how, uh, but let's suppose you have a scenario where, uh, you know, you only want one of them up at any given time, right? Right. Because a lot of these VMs are stateful in the, in, you know, by nature. Right. In in that you can't, you can't be load balancing every request to a different. Yeah. that, that's where kind of the challenge comes in as far as, you know, like I was talking about, like some workloads like SQL Server is a really good example, right? SQL Server is always, you know, has always on as a way to do high availability. And you could theoretically design a situation where you have multiple 
SQL Server always on VMs in the same availability set, right? And then you guarantee that only at any time at least one of those virtual machines, SQL Server virtual machines or SQL Server replicas, they're called when they're an always on set, are up and running. Now, always on is built, so as long as you have one replica up and going, it will um, – there's sh- kind of a shared nothing type infrastructure. So your your workload will continue. You'll, your database transactions will continue when the other replica comes back up, but they'll, they'll resynchronize. Um, I'm trying to think if, let's say you tried to have two SQL servers that were just, you know, up and they're not, they're not in an always on. Yeah. They they don't know anything about each other. So you can't, you can't really do it in that scenario. So there, there's definitely some limitations to what you can do in this today. Okay. Um, we get it. We're, we're working on, on trying to improve this, but some of this is all about general overall availability, right? Even on premises, if I only have one, one machine doing SQL server, I'm still going to get it downtime periodically, right? You got to reboot those machines sometimes. Yeah, Evan. I think one of the things that um, I've heard is, you know, when it's when it's on premises, um, the people can you know hug their servers and they know what's going on with them. They know when they're <laughs> patching them and all that like stuff. That. <laughs> yeah, but you know when it get, when it gets out of their hands a little bit and it's up in the cloud, uh, like something in Azure. Um, you know, they're still in control of the OS updates on that VM, but the host updates, you know, underneath this thing uh, could decide, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, it's time to move. And, yeah, um, it, yeah. It, exactly. And actually, to be to be, to be fair, um, most of the reboots that we see in this scenario are actually not host updates, per se. They're actually something went wrong with the host, so we really didn't have a choice. Um, we do try and, you know, we do try and do some work to time the host updates based on the region and kind of the workload when we expect the peak workload time is in the region we try and avoid that but you know if you're running a workload that's out of your region right or I'm sorry if your workload is running in a region that doesn't quite match up with you for whatever reason you know it is possibly miss that so yeah it's it's not as clean a story as I would like the the reality is you need to build your applications in the cloud for resiliency against this kind of brief downtime, you know, caching, um, you know, always on, you know, multiple web servers, all those kind of things to, to build that resiliency in. Yep. Um, we have talked about notifying customers when we do this stuff, but it's a really hard technical problem, you know, if you think about it. Because even if I notify you, there's still going to be a percentage of times where I didn't know it was going to fail. It just, it just did, and yep. I had to recover from it. Um, the other question is, well, like, do I let you delay it, or like, how do you how do you manage that? So it's it's a tough, tough technical problem, but we're aware of it. But it, we I don't we don't have a solution for it yet today. But yeah, excellent, excellent point, excellent question. The the last big thing that we see or we hear about is you know somebody's VIP changing. Um, you know your VIP, so your public IP is tied to your cloud service. If you delete the last VM in your cloud service, you know, so you do a stop, deallocate, then we will deallocate the VIP. That means that when you come back up, you're going to potentially get a different VIP. This can really be a problem if you've got DNS pointers to that, right? You've got some, you know, third-party hosted DNS solution that's pointing to this VIP, and now your VIP's changed. Um, I actually worked with a customer who ran into this a couple months ago, and it took... I'm not a DNS guy at heart, but I want to say it's 24 to 48 hours for DNS to replicate through the whole Internet, right, across all the, the primary DNS servers and everything. 
And so the net result was that for 24 to 48 hours, they would just, you know, some customers would get failures, but not others. The the way to to work around this is first, you know, try not to take down your last VM. But if you have to, for whatever reason, you know, you're moving the storage account it's in, you know, anything like that that does absolutely require um, an actual stop the allocate. Now, and let me make sure I clarify, it's not just a restart, right? A restart's okay. It's a true stop the allocate, which is basically going to portal and do a stop. That's the only time you'll see us lose that, or see you lose that. We, if you look at the, so if you want to get a kind of a sneak peek at what we're doing, take a look at the PowerShell commandlets we released a month or so ago, and there's a preview commandlet that you can uh, import, and you can see some things that we're working on that are just about ready. They're not quite ready, um, and I'm not committing to when they'll ship, but you can, you know, if they show up in the PowerShell, we're getting pretty close. You'll see that there's some VIP reservation commandlets out there. So we we are definitely working on the ability for you to reserve a VIP so that even if you do a stop deallocate, then you're not going to lose your VIP. You know, again, kind of preserving that. But if you absolutely can't wait for that and you absolutely have a hard requirement for this, the trick that I generally recommend people do is to throw an extra small VM out there and and just leave that guy running when you have to take when you have to do a full stop on the other VM. That's going to run you, I think, right around seventy dollars a month for an extra small VM. And, you know, if you truly have a hard dependency on an IP address, then I think that's probably a reasonable um, compromise, at least until we get the VIP reservation going. That's a good point. Uh, that's a good tip to uh, actually keep one of those extra small VMs running. It's, it's a cool idea. Um, Evan, so one of the other things, along with the, uh, the whole idea of something just went wrong with my VM, what about um, just... Merely, I lost access to my VP, to my VM. Um, I, you know, I was RDP into it for a month, and I go back tomorrow, and all of a sudden I can't now. What happened? Yeah, there's a lot of different things that can go on there. Um, you know, there's there's kind of true RDS type problems, remote desktop services problems, where you you're you know we do actually mean it when you install the RDS role, and we start counting down your license. Right, you have 100, I think it's 180 days to, um, you know put in cows at that point, you know, we're, we're not kidding. <laughs> um, you know, so when that cuts down, we will, we'll lock you out of those VMs as non-admin. You know, you have to go in with the slash admin switch. The, this is actually, and this is something that I think is really cool about the cloud world. Um, if you've ever, you know, and Sajit and, and Kale, I'm sure you guys have at some point worked with one of the um, Microsoft product groups around getting a bug fixed in some product or some feature. Right. There's there's a lot of push and pull there of where do you fix it and what versions do you fix it and mm-hmm. and do you backport it, do you forward put it, all that kind of stuff. With Windows Azure, there is only one copy of everything. Right? There is only one, you know, currently today running build of the portal. There is only one currently running build of the, you know, Windows Azure fabric. So what we're actually gonna do in the very near future is we're gonna change the um we're talking about changing it. We haven't completely ended on it, but we're, we're talking about changing the default behavior in the portal to slash admin. So that if you're truly coming in as an admin, you're always going to get in. And then if you're giving out an RDP file, you just handcraft one to your end user, which is what most people do anyway. Right? So we're just, we can completely eliminate this whole class of problems related to RDS. The other things to think about if you can't get in via RDP, can you go in via PowerShell? Right? I talked about this earlier. PowerShell is not for the faint of heart. But if you 
you know, PowerShell is super powerful. You can, there's lots of things you can check, especially if you leverage WMI through it. Um, can you get into your VM from another VM in the same VNet? Right, you know, use the internal endpoints. If, if if that works, then you probably just have a bad endpoint. You may need to reconfigure your endpoint. The last one, which is again definitely not for the faint of heart, is attach your OS disk and a data disk to another VM, and then start changing the registry. Right. So if you've seen all of our standard disclaimers about, hey, be very careful changing the registry. Imagine doing it when it's not even really a live OS registry. Right. This is attached as a data disk to another one. So you can definitely do it, but it you got to be very very careful. Um, the other big scenario, and this really doesn't hit you, you were talking, Kale, about the scenario where you, it was working and then it didn't work. This really doesn't come into play here, but we do see a fair number of cases where somebody builds uh, an image or they sysprep a VM and something goes wrong with the sysprep or something's wrong with the image. In that case, obviously, if you can't boot, you can't RDP. Right? That's kind of have to be up before you can RDP. The, the last thing that I, I really want to talk about here is around rebuilding, right? So I'm in support. I'm a highly technical guy, probably too technical sometimes. I like to know the root cause. But in a business app scenario, maybe it's not worth it, right? If if we've got, if you've got a VM that's misbehaving for whatever reason, and all you've got on there is, you know, some, some SQL Server database files, or you've got some, you know, ASPX files or things like that, maybe you don't troubleshoot that VM. Maybe you just Throw a new VM out there, you drop it into the VNet, it's got the same VIP, uh, and then you copy, you take your old VM, attach it as a data disk, or there's some third-party tools that do this, copy the files off, copy them onto your new VM, and then potentially you're up and running very, very quickly. Right? We all like this technology, we all think it's cool, we all want to play with it, but fundamentally we're all doing this, you know, because we're in business. And we're, you know, we want to run our business. If your VMs are not running, you can't run a business. So maybe your business is more crucial than understanding the root cause. Absolutely. And I think the right thing for uh, for most uh, enterprises to do is to have that image, right, where they can rebuild their VM from. Yeah. Uh, you got to have that uh, that base image so that in case they have to, they can quickly start one uh, another instance of it or rebuild a new machine from that and not have to do a lot of manual things. It, I know it takes a lot of effort to build that image because you got to put all the scripts in there to automatically configure yourself. But once you have it in there, it's a push button to get a new uh, VM started. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it, it really, you know, if you save your old one, we could always do root cause on it after. I mean, I've been on a lot of crits over my years, and let me tell you, it is much more fun to do root cause when I don't have some general manager or some sales guy breathing down my neck, <laughs> they can't sell product, right? Um, it's much, much more fun to do those at that point. So, you know, save the VHD and we can look at it after the fact. I think it also drives home the point you were kind of making with some other things, Evan, where it was try to keep these workloads relatively generic. Don't be tweaking every knob and dial up there on your VM. Try to keep it as... Um, kind of as generic as possible. This way, it can move around, and those things aren't going to affect your your business logic and your app. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good point. I mean, the people like to tweak things in Windows and, and you know, or a SQL Server and SharePoint, but ninety five percent of the workloads out there run just fine with the default values, right? So if you have this hyper tweaked or hyper tuned environment, it's that much harder. One, it's that much easier to to break. Um, and two, it's that much harder to recover. So, yeah, that's an excellent point, Kale. Okay. Wow, that was, 
that's a real treasure trove of uh, tips over there. Thanks a lot, Evan. Uh, you know, we, uh, your experience uh, really uh, gives us a lot to learn from. I'm now, all uh, about. Oh, I was gonna say I'm all about avoiding you calling me, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. And, uh, and, and I know you've got a whole bunch of more goodies uh, to share, but uh, what we'll do is we'll we'll save some of those for another episode. I think we've uh, kind of gone pretty long already on this uh, particular uh, episode, so we'll 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 stop over here. But before we wind up. I just wanted to, uh, as usual, cover some of the uh, resources and the latest updates uh, related to Windows Azure uh, service. Some exciting ones, actually. Uh, as usual, uh, we've uh, started to drop uh, prices uh, on some of our storage. There's now, uh, I think, uh, 20% reduction on storage, and even the access, the storage transactions that reduce, have, the prices have been reduced by 50%. So we're really starting to cut back on, uh, cut down on the uh, the cost and make it more effective, cost effective for you guys to, you know, to to put more of your workloads up in Windows Azure. That's really the uh, uh, the point here. And and for, and for some of you that need real beefy machines to run heavy duty stuff, we've introduced two more. Um, uh, VM, uh, v, uh, you know, uh, the CPU inten- uh, compute intensive instances. These are the A8 and the A9. Uh, one has eight virtual cores with 56 gigabytes of RAM, and the A9 has a whopping 16 virtual cores with 112 GB of RAM. Wow. Uh, what uh, what I wouldn't <laughs> want to try on that machine. Try, so try that nice with your machine. free trial account up there. <laughs> <laughs> How long will that last? About two seconds. <laughs> Actually, it, you know, it's funny you said. I was I was talking to one of the engineers, and she's on the HPC team where they're they're doing these A8s and A9s. And if you do like a standard like just dummy workload for an HPC VM, you'll use a hundred cores simultaneously. So I go to that 750 in about seven and a half hours, and it'll blow through your default core limit of 20, like, right away. So, yeah, definitely a lot of power there. Cool. And uh, and then there's uh, uh, there's also some new um, – uh, this is great. You know, for, for those of you who like scripts, uh, the PowerShell scripts, is uh, there is uh, a lot of stuff on the script center. We're going to put some links out there for you guys. Uh, it's a big library of scripts already, so don't write your own scripts. Please go out there and search for existing scripts and use them and maybe modify what's already out there. And then uh, I, I know there's a, this is a topic that we probably might pick up next week. That's on uh, Windows Azure Active Directory. Um, there's uh, some white papers that we've put out there, so there's going to be a link uh, for that too. And, uh, Evan, you want to talk about some of the other links out there? The yeah. The, um, so I, we've got some on the, you know, the scripting for the endpoint and the ACLs, which you just said. <laughs> uh, and um, I put out the links for the PowerShell for the export Azure VM and get Azure Network VNet config. Um, so, yeah, definitely leverage those and, and save your configs. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks, uh, guys, both of you, for all your uh, advice and uh, tips on this particular episode, special episode based on uh, the Evans experience in, uh, you know, in, in answering calls and taking uh, support phone calls for uh, for IS deployments, and uh, I think we all learned a lot of that. So, uh, well, we'll uh, see you guys uh, next week then. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any comments or questions, please use our Twitter handle at Azure Podcasts. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. Thank you, and see you next time.